You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your grace this morning as we read these words. Uh, we think of Peter's comments that Paul writes things that are hard to understand. Father, they uh, are indeed dense at times, but Father, they are so lovely and so wonderful and so uh, uh, liberating, Father, as we begin to understand them. Father, we look to you that you would be our teacher and our guide, Father, that you would be pleased to teach us uh, from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We've been spending a lot of time in these verses, and I hope that as we read through and as we've read through, uh, some of you are saying, okay, you know, yeah, I remember that phrase, or I remember that sentence, or I remember that. And, and uh, uh, some understanding of these things is uh, popping into mind. Uh, so hopefully we're starting to understand the parts of this text. Now, what I want to do this morning is really kind of stand back from it. We've been looking at these verses really closely, sometimes only looking at a phrase at a time. And what I want to do uh, uh, this morning is kind of stand back and look and see how this whole thing's put together. Uh, we could look at it in a couple different ways. An uh, illustration that I like to use is uh, Christmas time, you know, when you, you got those uh, gifts for the kids that says assembly required. Uh, you know, you, you dump all the parts out on the floor and it doesn't look like much of anything. Uh, you have to put it all together. Yes. Uh, we might also look at it another way. If you've seen the Google Earth, I'm sure everyone's probably seen that, where you can zero down and you can look at a really small place and in some cases maybe even look down at the roof of your house. Uh, but then you can actually stand back and look and see where your house is in position to other things. What I want to do is kind of zoom out, if you will, so that we can see how Romans 5 sits in position 
with all of these other things, if that makes any sense. What's Paul's argument? What's the Holy Spirit? Where's the Holy Spirit taking us? Well, turn the page with me, if you will, uh, back to Romans 1. Let's just start from the beginning. I like block diagrams. I like schematics. I like these kinds of things. And uh, my guess is that some of you find these helpful as well. You'll recall that Paul uh, introduces himself in what we call the greeting, verse, chapter 1, verse 1. He introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, who is set apart for uh, good news. And not just for any good news, uh, but for the good news of God. You see the phrase, the gospel of God. I like to keep that ball bouncing. Uh, the good news, gospel means good news. The good news that Paul is setting forth here is the good news of God. Uh, it's God's good news. And uh, verse 2 tells us that God had promised this good news through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And as I've said in earlier messages, that all, all the way back at the time of the writing of Romans, the gospel was already an ancient message. It was already an ancient message based on an ancient promise uh, that was made all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 and verse 15. It's helpful for us to remember that. Paul is not bringing something new just out of, the, out of, the, uh, uh, out of a vacuum. No, uh, Paul was given revelation to understand promises that had already been made. Uh, this is already an ancient promise. It's already ancient good news. God had promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, it concerns Jesus, doesn't it? Concerning his what? Concerning his son. It centers on Christ. It centers on Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we skip down to verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Uh, because uh, the gospel has always been an offensive message to human pride, hasn't it? Why would Paul say that? Why would he say I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Uh, because it's uh, always been offensive to human pride as we will see here in a few moments. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No, no, to the contrary. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is such a message that's needed today. As everybody grasps for this methodology and that methodology, grasping for this plan or for that plan, how are we going to get through life? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? Paul's setting forth, here's the power of salvation for everybody who believes. It's right here. It's the gospel. First for the Jew and also for the Greek. Why? For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. And then we turn to verse 18 and we get what we've been calling the bad news of the gospel. And uh, as I've said in earlier messages, Paul, uh, Paul does to give us a verse or two about this, does he? From verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, Paul's giving us the bad news of the gospel. He says for the wrath, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And I, I keep mentioning this because we live in a day today where 
the world no longer believes in the wrath of God, and that shouldn't be surprising to us. But the surprising thing is we live in a day where the church doesn't believe in the wrath of God any longer. It hardly believes in the wrath of God. Uh, It's believed that uh, God is love and that there's no room in God for any kind of wrath. And what is forgotten is that, yes, God is love, but the reason the reason God is so loving is because he is holy and because he is just and uh, the, the wrath of God is something it is a necessary consequence of his justice. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, what this is telling us is that everyone knows God exists. We all know this because he has so lovingly imparted that instinctively into each of our hearts. Everyone knows that God exists, but we don't want him to exist. Uh, We don't want him bossing us around. We don't want him interfering with our lives. We don't want him intruding in on things. So with our unrighteousness and our unbelief, we push that back as far as we possibly can. No, Paul says what can be known about God is as plain as can be because God has shown it to us. How? Through creation. Through creation. And you look at how cleverly everyone is trying to explain God away through some of the craziest schemes that if our forefathers were to have heard some of this stuff, they'd think we completely lost our minds. Uh, how are we to believe some of these things? Yet they're adopted and, and held by some of the most intelligent people in the world. Now, now Paul will, uh, uh, he will uh, go on to explain this throughout chapter 1. Chapter 2 now, Paul says, therefore, we have no excuse, everyone who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, we condemn ourselves because we practice the very same things. Uh, this idea of judgment, Paul brings up. He says, that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. How do we know this? Because we are constantly pronouncing judgments on one another. If we were to record all of our judgments towards each other and we were to play them back, uh, we would soon discover that we know more about right and wrong than than we'd be willing to admit. Uh, Think of all of the judgments that we have passed on one another uh, where we've said, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this. Well, where's that coming from? Where does that come from? It comes from a conscience that Paul develops in chapter 2 And uh, he says that we know, we all know that this judgment is right. In other words, we know that the wrath is correct. You see, people hear about the wrath of God and they say, well, there's no room in the Godhead for that. Actually, we do know that there is room. We're pushing that away. We're pushing that as far back. We actually know this. And we know this quite well. And we demonstrate the fact that we know this quite well every time someone pulls out in front of us in their car only to drive down the road 20 miles an hour under the speed limit. Okay, that sometimes excites some of the worst behavior in some of us, doesn't it? What's wrong? What's up with that? We know that it's wrong. Where did you get that from? Where did that come from? We know more about this stuff than we realize, don't we? And we exhibit it all the time. Yet we try to push it out. God's not a God of wrath. We are people of wrath. We see it every day. We see it in our own hearts, don't we? 
when we get upset with one another. Isn't it amazing how upset we can get with people? Paul continues to develop this all through chapter 2 until finally he comes to chapter 3. He says, you know what? There just isn't anyone righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all turned aside together. They've become worthless. This couldn't be... This is, in terms of today's political correctness, this is dreadful, isn't it? These verses. But that's the indictment. And uh, this is the bad news that that Paul sets forth in his gospel explanation. And after we have read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we come to verse 21 of chapter 3. And Paul says, but now. And what could be more refreshing after reading that than these words, but now. But now what? The righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God. What Paul is saying is that there's a righteousness that's required to get into heaven, to stand into God's, uh, to be able to stand in God's presence, to be able to dwell with God in a a personable, uh, loving relationship. Uh, There's this righteousness that's required. it's It's a righteousness that none of us have. We simply don't have it. But the good news of the gospel, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, is that this righteousness that we don't have is now being made available in Christ Jesus. And it's being made available by faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. doesn't matter if we're Jewish, non-Jewish, if we're black or we're white or what color we are. There is no distinction. Verse 23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Verse 24, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, and this is going to become important to us when we get to Romans 5. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. You remember that word propitiation? What does it mean? See why we got to keep hearing this over and over again? You think, yeah, I know, I remember that. What did it mean? Don't. Don't let that bother you. We have to hear this over and over again. That's why I'm reviewing this. To propitiate is to placate. It's to to turn away wrath. Uh, Paul has already developed that the wrath of God is upon uh, all all humanity, all unbelieving humanity. Uh, But Christ has come and he has come to placate that wrath. He's come to turn that wrath aside. Well, how? By his death on the cross, by his blood. And he is to be received by faith. It's the only way that he can be received. And this is to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness. And when, we, when I was teaching on these verses months ago, I said that we've not only been justified uh, by faith in Christ Jesus, but we've been justified righteously by faith in Christ Jesus. God has shown his righteousness in doing these things because in his divine forbearance, he passed over sins. But to show his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus by faith in Jesus. Let me put it in this way. It's the way I used to explain it when I was ministering to the inmates out of Columbiana County Jail. Everybody was very conscious of their record. Some of you heard me say this before. When I mentioned record, if I was losing the the group, all I had to do was mention the word record and everybody stopped going fishing and they were suddenly tuned in. We all have a record. 
Every one of us has a record. It's not a very good record. It's certainly not a record that's going to get us into heaven. But the good news of what Paul is teaching us here in verses 21 through 26 is that Christ has a record. And it's a very good record. And that by putting our faith and our trust in Christ's record, his record becomes our record. Perfect and spotless. Isn't that good news? Especially if you've woke up this morning and you're thinking about some of the things you've done in the past. What could be better news? There isn't a person in the room that has, doesn't have something in the past they wish they wouldn't have done or wish they wouldn't have said or wish they wouldn't have done. Listen, Jesus. Jesus has come to take all that away. Hasn't he? How do we get it? We get it through faith in Christ Jesus. We can't earn it. We can't change our paths. We get it by Christ. That record of Jesus becomes ours. Our record becomes his. He dies on the cross. All of this to say, Paul is, he is, dem- he is, he is developing what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. In chapter 4, he uses Abraham and David as, the, as, as grand examples of this. Verse, uh, uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Okay. Chris Householder believes in God. It is credited to him as righteousness. You put your name in there. Sabrina believes in God. Believes in Christ. Believes in the promises of the gospel. And it is credited to her as righteousness as white as you can be. Now, when we get to chapter 5, what Paul is beginning to do between chapters 5 and 8, if you like block diagrams here, we have the introduction, right? We have a thematic statement of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, we have the bad news of the gospel. In chapter 3, 21, and on through the end of chapter 4, we have the good news of the gospel, justification by faith. In chapter 5, we now have the implications of justification by faith. The implications of justification by faith. That's what Paul's up. Okay, what's this mean? What does this mean for, for our lives? What does this mean? And that's what Paul's beginning to show us. Notice in chapter 5, verse 1, I've said a lot about these words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. He's pointing back. What he is saying here is, okay, because all of this has happened, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We now have peace with him. We've talked quite a bit about that. Furthermore, we have access to God through Christ Jesus. And we've talked about that. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we've talked about that. What is that rejoicing? Rejoicing is this confidence, confidence, uh, uh, the joy of confidence in God that we have here. The joy that comes from having confidence in God. Uh, The hope of the glory of God. What is that all about? You remember, the hope of the glory of God is hope that we will see uh, God as he is. We'll see him, Moses. Remember, he asks the Lord, show me your glory. 
And the hope of the glory of God is that we are going to see God. We are going to be able to see him uh, as he is. The hope of the glory of God is the hope of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The hope of the glory of God is the hope that all of creation is going to be transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. So we see we have really those primary things. All of these things are going to exist in the future. They haven't quite happened yet, have they? And that's where the word hope comes in. We've talked about hope. What is hope? On Friday afternoon, I had hoped that it would that it would stop raining long enough for me to get my grass cut. Maybe some of you else, maybe I, you know, some of you were saying, "Boy, the the the, the forecast on Saturday looks dismal." Um, if I don't get this grass cut Friday night, it's not going to happen Saturday. Monday night, we have a session meeting. It ain't going to happen then. It's going to be Tuesday before we could get to it. And my yard, that thick, I'd be probably four hours getting that grass cut. That's all I would get done Tuesday night. Um, I had a lot of hope that there would be a break, a long enough break, that the grass could dry up a little bit, that I could get it cut. Uh, by God's good grace, we... We were about it. We had about a half hour. Uh, I had the lawnmower put away, and about a half hour later, it started raining. So the grass is cut. Did I have certainty that it wasn't going to rain? We use hope all the time. You know, I hope it doesn't rain. You know, we, we we're gonna and we're in the process of getting a date for a bonfire here. Uh, we're 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 toying with the the twenty sixth of of May. Um, if that's the day, if that turns out to be the day, we hope it's going to be nice. Do we have certainty that it's going to be nice that night? No. And we got to be careful that we don't take this common everyday uh, use of hope and we, and we put it into Scripture. Biblical hope's not like that. Biblical hope is a hope, it's, it's, it's faith, if you will, looking into the future, but looking into the future with certainty. Looking into the future to things that we can't not we can't see them yet. We can't see God as he uh, as he is yet. We, we can't see him. We are not made fully into the likeness of Christ yet, are we? Uh, the new heavens and the new earth that hasn't transpired yet. But this biblical hope is hope, if you will, hope with certainty that these things will be. Now, we can have certainty because this hope rests in a person. It rests in the person of Christ Jesus. It rests in the person of God the Father. It rests in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we can have certainty. This is hope with certainty. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And all of this helps us to, re to rejoice in verse 3, to even rejoice in our sufferings. How can we rejoice in sufferings? Because we know God is taking us to this glorious end. You see, it's looking to the future. It's looking beyond the suffering. It's looking beyond this, if you will. Uh, looking to the certainty that we have in the future. Uh, and there's a wonderful chain of blessing that we've talked about here. We have... Um, uh, we see that the, we rejoice in sufferings because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So we see that the suffering produces hope. Now, what Paul does with verses 5 through the rest of the chapter is he gives us two reasons. 
that we can have certainty in everything that he has said up to this point. And the first reason is God's love. If you look at verse five, Paul says, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Some of your translations say hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. What's that mean? That means that in the end, we're not going to come to this place where we're going to be disappointed by our faith, where we're going to reach a place where, you know what? Um, This was all sham. Or that it's not going to be what we were expecting it to be. You see, Paul's already on this. He's already on this. He, He says, listen, your hope is well founded. It's well grounded. Don't be scared. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Look at the answer is look at the word because. Why, Paul? We could ask Paul the apostle, why? Because, because what? One, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Everyone who's in Christ Jesus has the Holy Spirit. That's a gift. Uh, The Holy Spirit opens our hearts up to believe and we believe the Holy Spirit. There he is working in our hearts. One of the things that the Holy Spirit communicates to us is God's love. He communicates God's love. In verse six, Paul says, think about it. Think about it. While we were still weak. At the right time. What's Paul talking about there? While we were still weak. Uh, some translations will say helpless while we were helpless, while we were without strength, if you will. Uh, Paul is, is talking about the enslavement that uh, that we have to sin as unbelievers. We could think about Israel back in Egypt. Israel were Israel was without hope unless God came and delivered them out of Egypt. Israel was completely without hope. In the same way, we're without hope unless Jesus comes and delivers us. Well, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2, doesn't he? We were once dead in our sins and walking in the the paths of unrighteousness, if you will. And then God, what's God do? Christ, he comes and he delivers us uh, from this. So while we were still weak uh, at the right time, uh, Paul says... uh, uh, this idea of timing in, in Galatians 4, 4, Paul uses the, the phrase in the fullness of time, Jesus came. Uh, we might think about Jesus's ministry. You know, if you think of the Gospel of John, if you've read through the Gospel of John, you'll have this phrase where his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. If you, if you recall seeing that phrase and then Jesus, he comes out and says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, for my hour has come. There's a time that God has established out of eternity when Jesus would enter into time, space and history and be born. And when Jesus would go to the cross. And furthermore, there's a time when Jesus will return. These times are set by uh, the decree of God. There is a time when Jesus is going to return in judgment. Now, what Paul is saying is, is while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the good guys. Is that what it says? He died for the ungodly. 
Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. Verse 7, what Paul is up to here is he's, he's showing human love at its best. This is what human love is like at its best. You know, one may scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. Commentators over the years have, some have made a distinction between righteous person and good person. Uh, Some have made a distinction between the two. Others haven't. They've said it's the the same. I think there's a distinction here. Uh, The righteous person would be maybe a person who's well known. You know, it might be a a woman that lives down the end of the street. She kind of keeps to herself, but it's well known that she's a godly woman. Um, I don't know much about her, but I know she's a godly woman. I know she, she, you know, she prays and she's righteous and all this. Uh, someone might, might, might dare die for her, but, uh, but for a good person, this, this might be someone you, we might think of people who have been in combat together, you know, and, you know, you got that old phrase, I got your six, you know, you've got somebody who's had your six before they've had your back before and, uh, they have proven it. They've went into into harm's way to save you. And you've been saved a couple times uh, by this person. You've become buddies. That's a good guy. He's a good guy. For that good guy, when the hand grenade gets lobbed into your tongue, you may dive on it for the good guy. I I think there is a distinction here. I I think there is. I can't be certain of it, but it's just my own personal thought on it. It makes no difference to the argument. What Paul is saying here is that this is human love at its best. This is human love at its best. But compare it to the love of God. Jesus does not die for people who have his six, nor does he die for people who are righteous. We are told that he dies for those who are still weak, helpless because they're enslaved to sin. They're ungodly. These are both in verse six, verse eight. Uh, We're described as sinners. And if you look down to verse 10, uh, we're described as enemies in our unbelief. Sometimes I will share with people uh, one on one that, listen, when we reach out to people who do not believe in Jesus, you're crossing over the enemy lines. You're, You're reaching out to people who are actually at enmity with God. I remember the first time I shared that with somebody. Man, did they get mad? And really, I think if someone would have shared that with with me uh, as an unbeliever, I would have got mad too. I said, wait a second. Who are you to tell me that I'm an enmity with Jesus? I'm not an enmity with Jesus. Well, you know, I have to th- think that through. I didn't really want him fussing around with my life much. I didn't pray to him much. I didn't do a whole lot to serve him. I guess my relationship was kind of like this, you know, I, Jesus, you're okay in my book as long as you stay over there and do what you do and leave me over here to do what I do. But what could that, what, what, that, that's proof positive that there's enmity, that there's hostility um, between us, is there not? It's not indifference, hostility. Is it not enmity? Maybe you're walking down the street and you see someone hit by a car and you just keep walking. Is that friendship? Is that love? That's indifference. Doesn't matter. Didn't happen to me. I don't really want to interrupt my schedule with it. I want to keep going. 
I think this is the leading thing that we're dealing with in our culture, too, actually, is this indifference. Uh, as I know, as I tell people about Jesus and try to talk to people about Jesus, uh, a majority of people don't really care. They just don't care. Just don't really care. You know? It's this indifference. And we need to understand that this hostility is on both sides. A lot of times we think, okay, the, the natural heart is at enmity with God. Okay, we got that. But we need to understand something else. God is at enmity with them. Some will say, well, that isn't right. What is God, some kind of ogre? No. We have no right to be at enmity with God. He has every right to be at enmity with us. See, If we don't get that, we're not going to get this. We will not get this. This is why the church don't get the gospel. It's because they don't get this. If you don't get this, you're not going to get the gospel. You're simply not going to get it. It's just going to be part of a, another diet program or a, another one of those self-help kind of things, you know? It's just going to be on the list. You're not going to get it. While we were at enmity with God, Christ died for us. Verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his first argument. And so back to all of this. If you're doubting about the hope, if you have any doubt about your hope, Paul says, listen, God has poured his love into our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit and think it through. Christ died for us while we were at enmity with him. You see, what he's doing is he's calling us to faith, to look backwards, isn't he? To look back to the cross. And by looking backwards at the cross this way, what does it do? It strengthens our hope to look forward. It strengthens our hope to look forward. Doesn't it? The second argument that he gives begins in verse 9. And it's brilliant. Um, he says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? You notice he's speaking of salvation kind of in a future way. Some of you say, wait a second, I thought we were already saved. Are we already saved? Well, in one sense we are. In one sense we are not. We're not salvation isn't complete right now, is it? We're still dwelling in this life. We're still wrestling with sin. We're still falling to sin from time to time, aren't we? Maybe more often than we'd like to care to confess or care to even think about. In one sense, yes, uh, salvation has come to us. And in one sense, we can speak of being saved, but we still don't have our glorified bodies yet. Christ hasn't come and put an end to sin yet. You see, this thing is still in process. The day of judgment hasn't come yet, which... Paul is really getting ready to talk about here. So Paul says, listen, if while we were hostile towards God, we've been saved by God. Okay. If God would come to us down in the gutters of sin and save us okay, and reconcile us, that means to, to put our relationship back on the tracks, if you will. If he will do this, how much more now that we're on the tracks with him will he save us 
If he was willing to do this while we were at enmity with him, how much more will he do this now that we're on track with him? Does that make sense? You see the argument there? Verse 10, for while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, God gives us Jesus Christ to die in our place. Okay, how much more now that we've been brought into a right relationship so he shall God see it through to the end. There's a phrase here at the end of verse 10 that's really interesting. It's, a, it, it's, it's really a mysterious phrase. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What does that mean? Saved by his life. That's a puzzling statement, isn't it? We might look at it this way. We might say, okay, we're saved by his life because Jesus comes and lives that perfect life, doesn't he? And he offers that perfect life on the cross. And by faith in him, that perfect life becomes ours. Is that correct? Right? That's one way we could look at it. I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here, though. Because he's talking about the death of Christ. He's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And I think what he really means here, I think what he's really pointing to now is the resurrection of Christ. I think that fits the context better. I can't be dogmatic about it, but I think it, I think it, it points to the resurrection. What is Jesus doing right now? He's reigning at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, making good on a promise that he made during his earthly ministry to build his church, among many other things. But one of the things that Jesus is doing is he is interceding and praying for his people. Did you know that? That Jesus is praying for you? If you're his, he's praying for you. Any chance that his prayers aren't going to be answered? What is he praying? We get a glimpse of what he prays. If you do this afternoon, read John 17 and read... Christ's high priestly prayer. He prays that we're going to be saved. He prays that we're going to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That where we are, he will be also. His, his, his intentions are to save us, to make us like him, to, uh, to bring us into glory. These are his intentions. I think that fits the context best. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more are we reconciled now that Jesus is raised at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, seeing this whole thing through to the end, praying for our every need. Does that make sense? I think that fits the context best. So Paul could say, listen, about the hope thing, if you have any doubt about the hope thing, well, there's these two things. There is God's love. Look back to the cross. Not only has he poured his love into our hearts by way of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but look what Jesus did while we were in enmity with him. He died on the cross for us. There's love at its finest. I mean, human love, we, we might jump on a hand grenade for one of our buddies, but that's human love at its best. We're not going to jump on no hand grenade for the enemy. There isn't anyone going to do that. Jesus jumps on the hand grenade for the enemy. Look at the love of God. But also look at the assurance. I mean, if Jesus would jump on the hand grenade for the enemy, how much more is he going to save you now that you're, you've become his friend? That's assurance of salvation, isn't it? So we have these two very powerful things. You see Paul's argument here? We get the bad news of the gospel. 
Then we get the good news of the gospel. And now we're getting the implications of the gospel. Does that make sense? I know it's a lot in one message. Uh, hopefully it's not too much, but... Um, and, and, and please, I mean, if you leave here and you think, man, a lot of that didn't stick. You know what? That's the way it works. Um, but keep coming back. And each time a little more sticks. And before you know it, you've got it all over you. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great, glorious gospel that we have in Romans, Father, as we try to stand back and look at at the argument from start to where we have completed up to verse 11 of chapter 5, Lord. And as I look around, I I see that there are quite a few that are are getting this whole thing. Their faces uh, seem to indicate they're, they're getting the whole thing, Father. As we look around the room, we see others maybe are like, okay, I missed quite a bit. I got a little bit. Father, I pray that you will bless everything that we get out of this this morning, Father, for your glory. Uh, For that is always the case. We don't get it all in one sitting. We get a little bit at a time as you're pleased to give it to us. But Father, I pray that the, the, the seed that has been now scattered about, Father, would take a deep root in the soil of our hearts. Condition our hearts, Father, to receive these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.